Many people want to make a big positive change, but they only dream it. Others get involved with political machines and they do wield incredible influence and they do actually make changes that influence the outcomes of many, many lives. Cressida Wall is one of these unique people who takes on incredibly demanding and complex jobs so that she can bring about positive change and have a positive impact in people's lives. How many people go into politics thinking that they can impose their view onto us all? Well, as an advisor to the Victorian Premier, Cressida never confused the situation, knowing that her views were not the views of other people. Cressida is a person of influence whose career spans political parties, global private tech startups, and now representing the interests of the sector that employs the most Australians. She believes that legislative change is probably the best way to make a difference, and she is probably spot on. Enjoy our discussion. Cressida Wall, Victoria Executive Director, Property Council of Australia, welcome to Discipline. Hello. Let's start back when you were first starting to think about your future. When you were a young child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I think I was pretty boring. I think I always wanted to be a lawyer uh, or similar or a barrister or something like that. I, I, uh, I didn't um, think much beyond that, I don't think. And why, why law? Why, what attracted you to that area? Uh, well, I, I think I was always a bit of a dork. I liked <laughs> the intellectual discipline of arguing. You know, I did debating and I liked... Um, all of the associated, you know, words, and I just liked that sort of um, that sort of activity. I guess it wasn't really. Um, I don't know. I don't think I thought very creatively about it at the time. And were you a good student? Yeah, I was. I was a nerd. You know, I was more academically inclined than yep. anything else. And my parents um, sort of were almost actively anti-sport and right. they thought that sport was my father once said to me he thought sport was something that people did if they couldn't do anything else well and he sort of felt <laughs> a bit sorry for sports people which is harsh but I mean that was his genuine yeah, belief right. so okay. it was a pretty pervasive um you know perspective in our household right um but you then studied law at Adelaide University mm. um did you do other studies as well or focus just on law um and then move straight into the law yeah, I did arts law at Adelaide Uni at the time. You had to do another degree and I did arts, which um, in some ways is great, but in other ways it was sort of a bit of a waste of time. I wish I'd done commerce or economics yeah, because I'm yeah. more interested in that really. But at the time I didn't have any concept of that. You know, yes. I didn't. I came from a family where it wasn't, you know, they were very academically inclined and they didn't really talk about finance. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up doing arts and I studied philosophy and anthropology and um I did philosophy at Adelaide Uni yeah. as an arts degree as well. I think, uh, I can't remember any of the lecturers, but I think it enabled me to spend quite a bit of time at the university bar. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the contact hours were terrific. Um, I ate a lot of cake in the university cafe <laughs> and um, sat on the lawn yes, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And then you went into the law, start practising that. Uh, was it... All that you'd thought it would be, the academic side, the intellectual stimulation? Yeah, so I had been involved in politics a lot at Adelaide Uni and I'd always worked part-time for politicians while I was finishing off my degree, Um, been very active. Uh, And I, when I got to 
to law. I went into a big commercial law firm, um, which was good. I mean, the you know, in one sense, it's great, and you get a huge amount of um, effort put into your intellectual development in those firms. So they really do spend the money on yeah. professional development yeah. and on getting things really right. I remember doing sessions on plain English drafting, which yes. I still think about today. Yeah. You know, I think that's really held me in good stead. Yeah, and I quite I loved the intellectual side of it. You know, when you were writing an opinion or a draft note about a particular point of law. Yes. Um, but it's the admin that kills you in law. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. the. I remember drafting these letters to letters of demand, you know, for someone for closing on a mortgage. I mean, it's the most soul-destroying work. And, um, you know, I was just a general uh, in general commercial litigation at the time, so you did a bit of everything. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, this is so boring and yeah. so depressing. Um, I mean, I understand that, you know, we live in a society where banks exist and that has to happen, but it yes. was also just like, oh, this is awful. Yeah. Um, and I just – so that wasn't – that fun and you know it's just you just have to do as a as a junior lawyer you have to do all the things to kind of find your way you know you do all that discovery which is sort of sticking stickers on something or numbering photocopy exactly and you know like I, i agree that you have to work and do those things and you can't suddenly become a you know you're not jeffrey robertson on day one but also there's a lot of being a lawyer is a lot of um a lot of boring things. Yeah, yeah. No, I walked in thinking I was Jeffrey Robertson on <laughs> yeah, day one, exactly, but exactly. that was beaten out of me by but not so hour much. one. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so after all of this, getting into the law, wanting to study it, studying it, uh, you then move out of the law and you find yourself as a senior advisor to the Premier of Victoria in around about uh, 2005. So uh, I think that's Steve Brax for yeah. the uh, yeah. Australian Labor Party. That's right. How yeah. do you find yourself there? Well, so I had worked in politics in South Australia as Chief of Staff to the to the Attorney General and Chief of Staff to the Treasurer um, and really enjoyed that, enjoyed the um, – it's a very broad group of activities that you do in one of those roles, so you're really juggling different things. It's not one, one-dimensional like law, you know, you're very specific and focused on one thing. Yes. And so I went back into that role, um, really, it was sort of coming back to it when I came here into Victoria. I did a year back in commercial litigation because I thought, oh, well, I'll just go back to that. I wanted to get out of South Australia and um, then I came back to what I was more comfortable with, to be honest, by that stage, which was politics, um, and worked for Steve Brax, which was uh, which was great, actually. I mean, yeah. he was a really genuinely nice human being and yes. it was a really positive office and lots of really yeah. intelligent and fun people, so it was a very good experience, yeah. And what was it that attracted you to politics? I mean, you've obviously had an interest, as you say, from university days or possibly even before, Mm. uh, what about the political process or political parties that uh, enticed you? Well, first of all, I think everything is political. So every workplace and every piece of work that you could do is inherently political. So my feeling was why not be at the point where you're the most political, like where you're the most obvious about that, you know, why not be quite clear that that's what you're doing? And secondly, I think, you know, legislative change is the single biggest way to make a difference Um, and I always wanted to make some sort of difference yes. with my life um, and uh, accordingly it seemed logical to me to be involved in politics. Okay. Did you have to choose at an early stage which political party or what side of politics uh, you were on? I mean, you, you've done this from quite an early stage at university. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you reach that decision? Is it uh, trying to find something that aligns with your social side or your economic side? What is it that uh, enables someone to find a place within a political party? 
Well, I think for me, I my, my parents were they talked about politics, but not not they weren't ostensibly party political. Although later, um, uh, you know, my mother came from more of the Labor side of politics, and probably my father came from more from the Conservative side. But he didn't really wear his colours on his sleeve. Yeah. Um, yep. But I was always a fairly centrist person. Yes. But um, the one thing I think that uniquely positions the Labor Party for me that makes me want, what made me want to be involved with it was about collectivism. Yes. I, I sort of genuinely believe yep. that people are a product of where they come from and the groups that they are part of. And so for me, from a very deep philosophical perspective, you know, a small L liberal um perspective just doesn't resonate with me i just yep. don't think that treating everyone the same and expecting everyone to succeed is rational it yes. doesn't seem yep. at all logical to yep. me and so even though in some ways i could could be a sort of soft liberal yes I'm, i wouldn't i don't think i would ever really sit right there yeah so it's found a natural home yeah yep. and in the um in the advisory role you had for the uh, premier um, how many advisors are there? Give us a sense of what that team looks like. Oh, it fluctuates so much. But, I, you know, there would have been, oh, there would have been, I don't know, 40 or so in his office. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, that's, that's a big team. Yeah, and there's advisors in every ministerial office um, across government. Um, yes. A chief of staff and usually two or three advisors. So it's quite a big posse of people that, um, you know, that, yeah. that all have similar activities. Um, were you junior in that role? Um, well, I came in as a senior advisor. So okay. there are junior advisors and I started as a senior advisor because I'd been a chief of staff in another government. Yes. So that sort of experience was recognised at the time. Yeah. Um, but it was it's funny, I think, when you start in a new place, you, you know, there are some things that are really the same and then there are some things that are just totally different. And I remember once I was the advisor for infrastructure and I was a very... Um, I think I was a pretty solid political advisor, had very good political instincts and was very thorough um, with my work. But there was one time I remember I literally mixed up the Balti Bridge and the Westgate Bridge, which for an infrastructure <laughs> advisor is pretty bad. But, you know, it was it was when I was talking to another advisor so, yeah. and they gently pointed that out. Or, yeah. I don't remember how gentle they were. They probably <laughs> mocked me, but that's okay. You know, I was there to advise on politics, you yeah. know, and, and there will always be technical experts. Yeah. I always say when I get stuff wrong in Melbourne, which I do all the time, I say, look, I'm, I'm from Adelaide. Don't, don't, you yeah. know, we know everything in Adelaide. It's a tiny town. This place is humongous. <laughs> and those bridges are pretty close together, aren't they? That's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> I know where they are now. I'm very across this. Please, everyone, be assured. <laughs> you say you want to leave your mark through, you know, legislative change, and then you've got a team of 40 advisors. So how, how do those two concepts mix do you actually get to leave your mark through legislative change when you've got a team that big um yeah well i mean each one of those was working on something different for um for the premier at the time and i wasn't involved in infrastructure and and later i went and worked um as tim palace's chief of staff when he was minister for roads and ports and um you know i can say that we had a specific impact. I mean, one of the things that Tim did at the time and I was really 
a part of a really strong part of it, I mean, driving the practical aspects of this is that we changed the law to require electronic stability control within cars in Victoria ahead of all of the national and international standards. Yes. Um, and you, you can demonstrate that that would have saved over the course of a couple of years, you know, I don't know, 20 or 40 lives. Yes. Um, because Victoria adopted that out of sequence with everyone. Everyone was saying, oh, let's just wait until the standard's sorted. And we were like, well, no, we're not going yeah, to. The why? technology exists and yeah. we may as well mandate it. And um, so there were things like that where you can actually show very specific things that you made a difference on. Because if I hadn't been there, um, oh, you know, Tim had a view and he wanted to do it. But also I, I was I was directly involved in that and I felt like I made a difference. Yeah. That's terrific. When you got into that position with the um, uh, Minister of Roads and Ports, what made people believe that um, you were cut out for this function? And what, obviously you developed some skills, but what skills are they that make someone cut out for this function? Um, I think that you have to be able to juggle a lot of competing uh, priorities. I mean, that's common to many jobs, I suppose. But I also think that... um, one of my strengths in that role was that um, a lot of people in politics think that they like really know what people are thinking and that they're really switched on to that. And in my time in politics, I have met a bunch of people who I could say that about. You know, they have an uncanny ability to pick the public mood. Yes. And I, I don't think I have that ability, but I, I at least don't get confused about thinking that my views are the views of other people. Yeah, yeah. And I think that... Um, that's a real strength that you have to bring to those sorts of roles to actually listen to the public. Um, yeah. And the public, uh, I think the mob generally gets it right. Yeah. You know, they work out when someone's, you know, dissembling, they work out um, and you have to listen to that. You know, yeah. Sometimes you look at people and you go, wow, that's a perverse outcome. Why are they getting so cranky about that? But then you sort of go, well, you know, that meant something to them. Yes. And what you have to try and work that out in politics, that's your job. Yeah, that's a hard thing to sort of work out. Yeah. And it, the pressure, you think of these roles, you know, and I'm taking an extreme looking at something like the West Wing, for example, in these, you know, all 24-7, all-encompassing roles advising government ministers. Is it like that? Is it, you know, huge amount of pressure and time constraints and not much sleep going on? It can be. Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I don't... I, I wouldn't ever compare myself to Josh Lyman um, because, that you know, like the sort of decisions they have to make are catastrophic. But, yeah, I think there's a huge amount of pressure. You just – people joke in, in their jobs, you know, well, no one's going to die. But if you're in the health minister's office, and thank God I never was, um, you know, someone might die if you yeah. make a mistake. Yeah. So it is like even as an advisor that's a lot of pressure and when – if you make a significant mistake, you know, your minister could literally lose their job. You know, yes. they just won't, and you won't have a job the next day, like literally the next day, yes. a minister could terminate. So yep. there's not a lot of jobs where that happens. It's quite a different scenario. When a minister is going into parliament, um, that their, their job is on the line every day, really. If they if they lied, even accidentally in parliament, they would be terminated immediately. Yep. It's like it's pretty dramatic amount of pressure um, that I don't think people think about you know and certainly don't experience in most other jobs um but the rewards are very great so no one should have a violin out for those people certainly not for me you know you know you have a really amazing ability to influence and to be engaged in the public life of victoria and it comes with a 
you know, a, a consequential cost. Yes. That you would expect that in life. So. Someone once said to me that uh, you can make more political change from the outside of the machine than from the inside. I mean, there must be elements of truth in that as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I mean, advisors do wield quite a lot of influence. It depends on the minister. Some ministers are more or less dependent on their advisors. Um, I think that being... Like, in, yes, minister. Yeah, yeah. I think being inside the tent, you do get to understand and see things that you'll never experience outside. Yeah. Um, you know, but then every now and then somebody in the private sector will do something so extraordinary that it kind of, it is sort of game changing and government will have to sit up and take notice. Yes. There been examples of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned people losing jobs, um, you know, almost the next day. So you go into a role of head of policy leading towards the 2010 election. Um, you've moved from the Brax era under, under the Brumby, onto the Brumby era. Mm. Um you're helping develop government policy. I mean, who makes that call that you should be helping develop government policy? Uh, so at the time it was the Chief of Staff to the to John Brumby, um, uh, the Premier at the time, he made the decision and they needed somebody to pull together the different threads of policy. And, um, yeah, and so I went into the Premier's office to do that and try and coordinate the different officers and their different perspectives and actually write it all up into policies. And Sounds extremely complex. There was a lot of complexity to it, but there was a lot of um, talented people, yeah. team members who were working on it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating process though and I think, you, you know, recent times with the federal, the last federal election have shown that policy is really important yeah, to yeah. winning or losing an election. Yeah. Um, and there's this delicate balance I think you have to walk between um, actually having a vision and being able to communicate it and not giving too much detail because what happens if you give too much detail is that people shred it in a way that is worse than if you didn't give it. And that's sad but true. I'm yeah. Sure. That's the reality of Australian politics. So coming into this 2010 election... Um, you know, there's obviously different views on who's going to win, but ultimately the Labor Party lose that to the Liberal Party and Ted Bailey. Yeah. Um, you know, 50% of people take great pleasure in one party being ousted and the other 50% take great pleasure in one party getting into power. But as you said, people lose their, their jobs. So when that happens, and I'm sorry if I'm opening old wounds no, or anything, <laughs> um, you know, there must be a lot of upheaval. Jobs yeah. change, people have to find you know, new careers, what, what's that like? I mean, it's, you know, people often don't see that side of politics. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Um, during that election, everyone thought that Brumby was still going to win and I remember one of the advisors was talking to a journalist one day and the journalist was saying, oh, you know, what are you going to do next week? Um, you know, you're going to have, you might have a, you might have a new boss or you might have this or whatever. And this friend of mine who was an advisor said, well, if we don't win next week, I won't have a job. None of us will have jobs. And the media person was like, really? And it was just inconceivable that, you know, on the day after the election, literally there were 96 people sitting on Treasury lawns waiting for their exit interviews. Like there was nothing else for them to do. It was just, yeah. and that's bizarre, you know, it's very tumultuous. Um, and you all know the cost of that. And, and you get a, you know, you get a package like anyone would when they're redundant, um, but you're still suddenly without a job. And you yes. do walk around 
the next day, um, you know, along the street and you know that like 50% of the people you're seeing on the street don't like you yeah, <laughs> effectively yeah. and don't want you yeah. to have a job. But you're not hedging your bets coming into this thinking, <laughs> no. I better start looking for a job, we may lose. No, and and there's sort of an ethos within within politics that you, you have to kind of lock in about six months out from the election, everyone is there for the long haul then yeah. for the next six months. And if you leave within that period, it's considered really a, an act of gross dis- yeah really gross yeah. disloyalty because you can't afford to banish it no one does this yeah. you either stick with it or you don't yeah all all glory or die on the field sort of thing yeah and i think that's one of the things that really makes it worth worthwhile and it makes it feel like a good job is that you're very mandate driven and you're all in it together and there's yeah. like, there's very few jobs where you really feel that you know it's that it's a real team effort it really is yes and, and you know in politics and I, I assume it's similar in other um scenarios like in I mean an, an extreme example is the armed forces you know where you really you're all in it together and I mean yep. no one's trying to shoot you obviously <laughs> in government you're very lucky it's a very privileged life no, but, not in this country but yes. no no but it's I've, like it's just that you have you're, you you have a specific opposition and you have a specific yep. um, person that you're supporting and it's very clear. Yeah. Um, did you take it personally after the election loss? No, I, no. I didn't. No? I didn't. I just figure um, the wheel turns and yes. you yeah. can be, I was pretty uh, clear about, you, you can always do better and that government could have done better and I personally could have done better in that job. Everyone, you have to look at it as a learning opportunity. So. Yeah, you don't look back with regrets and go, what if we no, can't do it? No, I don't look back with regrets. I think um, I'd certainly learned and if I had to do that job today, I'd do it differently. But, you know, I did the best at the time that I could. So 2011, uh, you then go off to the private sector then yeah. with a better place. Yep. And for people who don't know, this is one of the uh, early electric car companies that uh, was based out of Palo Alto in Israel under Shia Gassi. Mm. Um, how did this come about? I knew Evan Thornley in politics and um, I went, I was doing a bit of consulting after the election, just random different things that I really enjoyed. And then I spoke to Evan and he said, why don't you come and be the chief of staff at Better Place? Um, he needed someone to pull things together. Yep. And um, and I went and did that. And it was, you know, it was a fascinating company. It's um, Its mandate was battery switch stations and at the time oil prices were very high and it was a rational thing to do and it was a really um, amazing uh, business. I mean, they raised something like 800 million US dollars before they were revenue positive. Um, And, uh, you know, that's incredible. And unfortunately, uh, it it was not successful. The heart heart was in the right place. Mm. So Shai was eventually... um, Removed as CEO and Evan was installed. Yep. The the Australian CEO, Evan Thornley, was installed as the global CEO and I went with him briefly. Um, I went with him for about five weeks to Israel as he tried where the head office was at the time and he uh, tried to sort of turn the ship around, which was experiencing some problems at the time. Um, and I was, but at the time I was uh, well, 25 weeks pregnant and so wow. I was never going to be a sort of permanent fixture in Tel Aviv. And, um, yeah. And the um, the grandparents of my now children were somewhat concerned when um, Tel Aviv was shelled yes. at that time for yeah. the first time since the oh, Gulf War. That's a daily so. occurrence over there. Well, it was. It is and it isn't. I mean, it, I was trying to be cool about it because you don't want to be the 
um, the, ex, the sort of outsider who's freaking out when all, all you know where all your colleagues basically live with that every day. Yeah. But they had these apps. I remember we were sitting in this meeting one day and they had they had their um, you know their bombing apps and the all the apps went off at once in this one meeting once and and. Um, and I said, is that bad? And they were like, oh, I just need to make a call to tell my kids to get into the bomb shelter. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I went to the toilet and I, was, I had a little tear and I was thinking, don't freak out. This is so uncool to freak out because everyone here yeah. is just living with this. And that, but they were like, even we're a bit freaked out on this particular one. Yeah. And so yeah. then, you know, Evan and I sort of said, like, maybe now's the time for me to come home. <laughs> So you did five weeks, so yeah, you? I did five weeks. Yeah, and it was, and it was interesting. So. And did you learn anything from the different uh, cultures, their approach to, um, you know, running a business? I mean, you go in there to try and do HR and OH and S, and from my understanding, the Israelis, that's really an afterthought in their uh, daily life. How do you how do you sort of cross that that chasm? There were differences, and I I, I love the Israeli um, perspective, but you know the there's a certain bluntness that I actually really enjoy about um, business in Israel. Yeah. Um, Some might call it rudeness. <laughs> well, one of my friends told a great story about how he was on the phone to his mother, um, you know, in Tel Aviv and um, was just sort of chatting away. And I think he was talking Hebrew. And But someone just randomly came up to him and just started to engage in the conversation. It was just like, well, you can't talk to your mother that way. I don't think you should say that. And, and he was just like, well, I mean, this is actually... Like, I know that I'm in a hotel lobby, but this is actually a private conversation. <laughs> so maybe you could just let me have it. <laughs> but then that's, I don't think that would happen in many other places yeah. in the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating uh, culture. And I've talked to a lot of people about uh, Israel because the technology coming out of there, again, electric cars, um, a lot of R&D happening over there. And, you know, Australia's got parts of that ecosystem it could try and borrow from in terms of trying to accelerate R&D and uh, yeah. um, tech innovation. Yeah, yeah. That's a great place. I'm going to move forward a little bit because uh, then you then work with um, Evan a bit more at um, Same Business, Different Outcome. Yeah, SVDO, yeah. Um, and then you take on some board positions and yeah. some executive positions. What skills do you bring to the table to have these roles and these positions? Um, I think... Uh, I have a good ability to get things done. You know, I think I'm pretty practical, so I think I have a level of tenacity which is um, useful. Um, and I was I was thinking about that the other day. I had to go to Vic Roads and swap over a registration, and it was the most complicated possible thing. And I, I, um, as the woman asked me for more and more things. You know, she was asking for this certificate and that certificate and everything. And, I, and each time I had what was required, and I thought. Oh, like that's my that's my special yeah, right. superpower is actually just getting things done and um, and uh, yeah, I think I've become a real generalist. I'm yeah. genuinely interested in the world and different things that are going on, and I think knitting those threads together is a big part of what I've done in my working life. Is actually finding um, connections between different businesses or disciplines, and I think that's a really useful skill as well. So. Um, those are a couple of the things I think have so, set me into this course. So you've got those skills and you could apply them then to almost any board. Mm. How do you choose which areas you want to apply them? What you know, Are you then looking for something you're passionate about or someone who really needs your assistance? How do you choose? Uh, yeah, well, I've always been interested in um, 
what makes things tick, you know, and that's that's attracted me to infrastructure. In a way, it, it chooses you, you know. I've always been one of those people who um, when someone asks me to do something, by and large, I'll say yes. So I, I, in some ways I've been strategic, you know, I have every few years I do write a five-year plan for myself and I find that I generally achieve the goals in the five-year plan, yeah, right. although not not necessarily in the way that I envisaged when I was writing the plan, you know. Yeah. So I'll sort of say, well, I want to do this and it'll turn out I'll do that, but it's a different, it's completely different from what I expected. Yeah. So I do sort of set general aspirations for myself, but the subject matter of those tends to coalesce as time goes by. And that certainly happened, you know, when it comes to infrastructure, you know, I sit on the board of the state trustees yep. now, which is super interesting. And um, that's, you know, a really socially driven um, business. Um, and then I sat on the board of Office of Projects of Victoria because, and that's a that's a board which is focused on delivering best practice infrastructure delivery within government. The Victorian government is engaged in one of the biggest infra- infrastructure pipelines of, you know, its history. Yep. And that that group is a whole lot of people who have skills or experience in that area where they're trying to work out how you could do it the best. Yep. So that's a fascinating um, activity. I mean, I love infrastructure. I'm just generally interested yeah, in yeah. roads and bridges and you know trains and you know my idea of a great day out is going on a tunnel visit <laughs> yeah know, which is pretty nerdy but once you get there i think everyone no they're pretty the, fascinating the machines that dig yeah. those tunnels are absolutely amazing mm. they're mind-boggling actually yeah absolutely um you're now at the property council of australia yeah uh which employs about 700 people in, in and of itself uh no it's not quite that big it's um there's about uh a two a uh, hundred people here across the states but we have about two and a half thousand members yeah okay and there are thousands of people employees um, um you know who are who are part of our industry 1.4 million australians that's right one in four people in australia is, is part of the property sector it's the, the biggest part of state revenue and the economy um bigger than other any other sector so and uh what does a body like this do so it's not a statutory body no so it's a member-based organisation yep. um, and we represent the interests of the property industry to government and, and to the public. Um, and we advocate to have better policy settings that will enable the property sector to flourish because, uh, you know, in my view, the, the property sector is so important to the Australian economy that if it's not doing well, then that's a problem. It is a big problem. Yeah. Um, so... You know, for lack of a better term, I suppose it's a bit of a lobby group, is that? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And then it has to straddle a sort of non-political party stance. Yeah. So it's not partisan. No, it's not partisan. Um, and how do you deal with different governments then? Because you've obviously got a very, you know, storied side of government that you've yeah. been involved with. Yeah. Um, does that make it difficult or is it not a problem at all? Uh, well, you know, I took take very seriously the idea of being nonpartisan. That's what I'm paid to do. That's my job here. And, um, you know, coming out of the legal tradition, you know, lawyers have that duty of zealousness and I have a duty of zealousness um, to advocate for my industry and that means creating connections with both sides of politics. So, um, yeah, so while, I mean, I worked in politics for many years, I haven't been active in politics now for 10 years prior to starting this job and... Um, I when I started this job, even on the day the day before it was announced, I 
I spoke to a friend of mine who's very active in the Liberal Party and he connected me with all of the key Liberals and did introductions for me and I rang all of them and said, I'm here, I'm going to be doing this, yep. um, you know, I want to work with you, I'm really serious about advocating um, in a neutral way, so let me know how we can work together. And I've I've continued to do that and I, you know, have a lot of respect for the current opposition. Um, you know, they're doing, you know, a really tough job and, yes. um, and I... I try to look for ways to navigate that in an appropriate way that serves the interests of our members. So is the door still open for you to go back into politics or do you think that one's shut? Or you don't, I think it's shut. I mean, yeah. I don't... Um, never say never? Yeah, I don't think that's... I, I, I don't have any real desire to be in politics. It's um, it's just such a tough gig and there's so yeah. much scrutiny. It's not... Um, you know, I have a lot of admiration for those people but with children and I just can't imagine subjecting my family to that sort of scrutiny. Yeah. It's, it's too much. I think it does get lost a lot how difficult a role um, ministers and opposition um, shadow ministers have because it's just so much scrutiny yeah. always on. Yeah. Um, well, and I think everyone sometimes in their darker moments think that somebody is out to get them or, you know, that yeah. somebody doesn't like them. But when you're a politician, that's actually factually true. <laughs> 50% of the people are well, out to get you. And there's a specific group of people, your opponent, your political opponents, whose job it is to actually bring you down. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of jobs where that's the case. Yeah, it's true. Even if it feels like it sometimes. I'm going to take things down a notch now. This is just the quick fire round. Okay. So if you got hit by a bus today, knocked over, what is the one thing you would say, I wish I'd done that? I wish I'd been had more fun. I wish I'd been sillier, I think. I've been pretty Never serious. too late. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah. um, what is your most memorable smell? Um, what is my most memorable? F- I have so many. Um, you know, my father was a, uh, a winemaker and he was really, he studied a lot about the olfactory process yeah. and so there's lots of he was an amazing cook as well so yeah. lots of smells that he made out of his kitchen yeah. i think but my favorite smell would probably be the smell of freshly baked bread yes um so that's not my most memorable but it's certainly yeah. any time i smell that i feel a sense of happiness yeah it's marvelous yeah um if you could go anywhere in the world now today for lunch where would you go i would go to uh, the best meal I ever had was at Per Se in Man- Man- Manhattan. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's often situational. It's who you were with and what yeah. you were doing. So. Yes. But it was a great meal. So I'd love to just go. Like, I wish you could teleport. <laughs> teleport to Manhattan for lunch would be fun. Be great. Maybe one day. Yeah. Um, where would you want to take your next holiday? I really wanted to go to the Venice Biennale um, and it was on this year. So in two years' time, that's where I'd like to go okay. and take the kids yeah, it's to save up. horribly <laughs> flooded at the moment. I know, I know. It's shocking. And I think it would be really, uh, you know, apparently going to that exhibition is, you know, it's quite intense, but I still think it would be fun. I've yeah. always wanted to do it. I love contemporary art. Yeah, so. lovely. Um, favourite movie? My favourite movie is Contact with uh, Jodie oh, yeah. Foster yeah. and Matthew McConaughey yeah. Yeah. because it's about believing in something beyond yourself yeah favorite band um i usually i have lots of favorite i've become enchanted with particular songs from time to time but my favorite band is the kings of convenience with which is a danish band yeah what culture fascinates you i'm a student of humanity i mean i really enjoy australian culture i think it's fascinating 
the issues that we're grappling with at the moment and what makes people tick generally. Some people would say we don't have a culture. Yeah, I think we do. I think there's some interesting data about our irreverence and, um, you know, which is actually a real thing. You know, there's that fascinating, you've probably read that Malcolm Gladwell article about uh, safety on airlines and Australian airlines were safer, arguably, because people used to tick off the captain and say, oh, I think you're barking up the wrong tree when they didn't say that in another more hierarchical um, environment. So I think that's a nice quality to Australia. Yeah. For young people out there looking to build a, a strong career and, you know, get these leadership qualities, what, what advice would you give them? I think try lots of different things. Say yes to a lot of things yep. and then really be prepared to work hard. There is just no substitute for hard work. Yeah. There will probably be sacrifices, you know. Um, that's unfortunately a part of really achieving hard, I think, is yep. that... You can't be everything all the time. Yes. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who says the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. Yeah, that's right. Um, he'll love hearing that as well. <laughs> uh, so, you know, already an incredible career, so many uh, diverse roles and uh, skill sets. You could no doubt go and do anything you, you choose. So what's next for you? Um, well, I'm, you know, I've only just been at the Property Council for a year, so um, I'm, Focus focused, here. I'm focused on this one, right? yeah. um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a really, um, there's lots to do. Yeah, excellent. Well, I know you're incredibly busy, so thank you very much for your time, your thank you. honest storytelling. Talking. Thank you, it's been great. Yeah. What do you know?